Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Love hearing uh, our, our students and young people uh, reading God's Word and, and learning God's Word. And if you're new to Central, we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, we currently are working our way through this book of the Bible called Romans, and we're going verse by verse through it. And so if someone invited you today, they didn't invite you because they, they thought, man, this, they got to hear this part of the Scripture. No, it's, just, it's just where we are. We're just working our way through it. Uh, it's, not, it's not to offend you in any way. It's just where we're at. Um, we're working our way through the book of Romans that is often referred to as the gospel according to Paul. Uh, There are four gospel accounts in the Bible, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The the book of Romans is referred to the gospel according to Paul because it doesn't just speak of Jesus' life, not just about his ministry or the miracles, uh, but Paul unpacks the ramifications of Jesus' life, the ramifications of, uh, of the cross and how that impacts our life today but also for all of eternity. And so Paul has just, just begun this, this letter. We're in chapter two, so if you're new, you, good time to jump in. Uh, but Paul, before he gets to the good news about the gospel of Jesus, he's laying out for us the bad news. And the bad news of our human condition is that all humanity is worthy of God's wrath. All humanity is worthy before a holy and just God to be judged based on what we have done. Now, Paul's going to get to the good news, but that's the bad news first. Uh, Franklin Graham, a a prominent preacher and and, and leader in the Christian movement, uh, quoted an article that was uh, done by um, Christian Arizona Arizona Christian University. They they discovered, they surveyed 1,000 pastors, and of those 1,000 pastors, 39% of these pastors said that there, there is no absolute truth, uh, but that it's up to the individual to discover what truth is for themselves. And I would just suggest to you that that is, is, is very harmful and anti-Bible. And if, if pastors are teaching that, then the congregations are, are very confused, and especially whenever it comes to this topic of God's wrath, especially in our culture where judgment of anything or anyone just comes across as so intolerant. And so some well-intended people will say things like, well, my God uh, would never judge anybody or would never send anybody to hell. And I would just suggest, is, ask the question, is that a true statement? Uh, some people would say, hey, the God of the Old Testament, like if you read the Old Testament, uh, it's like, man, there's some things going on in there. And God is kind of displaying some, some harsh reality, some wrath towards people, and they'll say things like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. And again, it begs the question, is that a true statement or not? A lot of times people will say, well, my God's a God of love. He would never judge anybody. And we just have to wrestle with the question, is that a true statement? So I want to look at, as we begin, before we jump into Romans, one of the most prolific passages in all the Bible, one of the most prominent memorized scriptures in all of scripture, and that's John 3.16. And if you're familiar with this, uh, we, we agree with a lot of this, but here's what I want to highlight. It's, it's love and wrath all at the same time. It says, for God so loved, and we're like, yeah, that's right. God's a God of love, and that is right. He is a God of love. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Like God is ridiculously generous. Uh, God is willing to sacrifice 
so much of himself, so much of what he, he values most, that which he is most precious to him for that which is you. He, want, he wants the relationship with you. So he, he so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now here's the question. So what does this imply? So if people who don't believe in him will perish and won't experience eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And we're all like, thank you, Jesus, because like, <laughs> I deserve that. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Save from what? If there is no hell, what, what did Jesus come for? What, what, what did he come to rescue us from? What's the big deal about the cross? Why is that so prominent? And I would suggest that he came, he reasoned he said his one and only son because he knew the human condition, that all of us, based on our actions, are worthy of God's wrath, so Jesus steps in as the rescuer, which is the ultimate good news that Paul is gonna begin to unpack. But before we get to the good news, we also need to understand the bad news. And so Paul does this like a prosecuting attorney and begins to pick apart humanity in four different sections. And we all identify in one of these four sections. The first he talked about was a depraved Gentile society. So these are the people that have become truth in and of themselves. It's not that they don't understand truth. That Paul says they actually suppress truth. They try to push truth down so truth doesn't have authority in their life. So they say, well, truth is relative to whatever I want it to be. They live however they want to live. And the results are, is self-destruction. Like, like, like they implode on themselves. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Then last week we talked about the moralist. This is basically uh, a secular society or secular self-righteousness that says, says, I know the right hashtags. I know the right social causes. I'm a good person. And they want to do a whole lot of good for humanity. But the challenge with doing good for humanity, there's, there's actually nothing wrong with that. It's actually very good. But to think that because we do good, therefore we will not be judged. Therefore God will let us go scot-free. Paul says that's, that's a wrong assumption. Today he's going to talk about the self-confident Jewish person. And so this is the religious person who says, hey, because I'm a Jew, because I'm religious, because I do A, B, C, and D, therefore God will accept me. And then next week he takes on the entire human race where it kind of builds up to this point in, in Romans 3.10 where he says there's no one righteous, like not even one. But Paul's building his case up until that point. A question, what, what's the greatest challenge facing the church today? Uh, there's quite a bit that we could talk about. We could talk about that perhaps the greatest challenge facing the church today is secular society. And, and there are some very real challenges there, but that's not the greatest challenge. Some people would say, man, large government and imposing restrictions and, and big government's the problem. And I think there's some issues there, but I don't think big government is the greatest challenge facing the church today. As we're going to see Paul talk about, the greatest challenge facing the church today is religious piety, religious activity without a love, a soft heart that says, God, I just want whatever you want. I, I, I'm, your, I'm your man, I'm your woman, whatever you have, God, I'm in. Dry, dead religion turns more people away and does more destructive damage than anything else that we could experience. The problem's not out there, the problem is often right here. And so that's what Paul wants to address today. He's gonna talk about hypocrisy. We're gonna look at four, four ways that religious hypocrisy uh, does damage to the church. So if you're taking notes, um, you're going to see that. At the top, it's religious hypocrisy, brings God's wrath. And so Paul's going to talk about how, how not only is it damaging, but it ultimately results in, 
in wrath. So what is hypocrisy? I think most of us probably have a, a somewhat of an understanding of what a, a hypocrite is, uh, as someone who says something but does something else. Uh, in the Greek, it's, it's huperetes. It's, uh, it was a Greek term for an actor. Uh, so we would say like Tom Hanks. Uh, in Greek society, we would label that a hypocrite. It's not, it wasn't a derogatory term. It was just simply a term of someone who doesn't act. And so in Greek theater, uh, they wouldn't have a whole lot of actors. They would just have maybe one or two. And, and an actor would, would come up, a, a, a hypocrite would come up with a mask on, this outfit on, and he would do a performance. He would do a drama. And, and then he would go backstage and, and put on a new outfit. And he'd come back out with a different mask, different character, different performance. And this would go on throughout the whole drama. And so he never, the actor, he or she would never reveal who they truly are. They're always changing masks. They're with this group, they wear this mask. They're with that group, they wear this mask. And Paul's going to address that. Jesus addresses that, 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 that hypocrisy uh, does, does damage. They never reveal who they truly are. So if you're taking notes, this is where they begin. Religious hypocrisy brings God's wrath because it discredits God's name. This is the argument that Paul's going to make. Romans 2, uh, verse 17 uh, through 20 says this. It says, now if you call yourself a Jew, in other words, if you have a religious affiliation, and so the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, Israel, uh, were, were God's chosen people. And so the Jews, like, God's not going to judge me because I'm, a Jew, like, I'm, his, I'm his chosen people. How could he judge me, right? And, uh, and Paul's going to say, hey, it's not about your religious affiliation that saves you. In our modern day culture, I think we could say, you know, you talk to someone, hey, do you know God? Well, yeah, of course I know God. I'm a Baptist. Like, that wasn't the question. Like, our religious affiliation doesn't necessarily mean that we have a connection with God. Uh, ask someone, hey, do you, do you know God? Yes. I'm, I, I go to Central Christian Church where we take communion every week. Like, it is amazing. Like, of course I'm a Christian. But, but our, our association doesn't necessarily equal our salvation. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. He's saying, hey, just because you identify as a Jew, God's chosen people, it does not necessarily mean that you are exempt from God's wrath. The question is, are you following Jesus? Uh, and I would say this, just on that note, there, there is tremendous value in being plugged into a community of believers, tremendous value in, in being plugged into a local church. And if you're, you're visiting and maybe from a different city, I, plug into a local church. Like there's, you thrive in that context. Matter of fact, we can't live out the mandates of scripture unless we are plugged into a community of believers, but we are not saved or rescued from God's wrath because we're a part of a community of believers. You with me? Okay, he says, goes on to say, uh, so you're not a Jew if you call yourself a Jew. If, if you rely on the law, in other words, if you have a, a holy text that teaches you about God, if you uh, brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior, or, and because you're instructed by the law, in other words, you, you sit under teaching, like you have someone instructs you in, in God's word, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind and a light for those in darkness... Jewish people would have understood that. That was, that was Israel's mission. That was their mission statement, to be a light to the nations, to reflect. They say, hey, look at us and we'll point you to God. And so they would say, yeah, yeah, for sure, that's me. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now we have to kind of put ourselves in the congregation in Rome. And so, so we're in, in Rome now. So let's imagine we're all in Rome, we're sitting in church, and we've just received a scroll from the Apostle Paul himself. And we're like, finally, Paul has written to us. Paul is going to give us some instruction. And we're gathered in this, this church space, and we, we open up the scroll. 
And Paul, he's been talking about God's wrath. And now he's like, hey, are you a Jewish person? Like, are you, are you a religious person? He's like, well, yeah, hey, actually, you know what I am. Hey, do you, do you rely on God's law? Like, like, I love the Bible. Of course. Yeah, that's, that's me. Paul, you're talking to me. Do you brag about your relationship with God? You're like, well, what? I wouldn't say I brag, but yes, I know God. Like, yeah, for sure. Uh, do you approve of what's superior because you know what God wants? Like, well, yeah, I think I have a somewhat of an understanding of what God wants, and I think I understand that. Are you instructed by, by God's word? Like, yeah, I, I sit under teaching. Like, do you instruct kids? Finally, Paul, thank you for a shout-out to kids' ministry. Yes, I do serve in kids. Matter of fact, thank you, Paul. Yes. It, it, like, do, 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 you, do you understand God's word? Yeah, like we, we have great teaching here in Rome, like fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji, like we're posting. It's awesome. Or your light for those in darkness. I live in Rome. Like this is the most secular society in the world. Like there's, we live, it's not even purple here. Like it is, it is all, all the opposite. And, and so this is where they're at. They're like, yeah, you're talking to us, Paul. This is, this is awesome. There's amens and wow, that's good preaching. Yeah, Paul, thanks for sitting in the scroll. And then Paul, it, like Paul does, he turns the tables. Verse 21 says, if that you identify with any of those things, then you who teach others, do you teach yourself? He's saying, hey, so you sit under teaching. You know God's will. You, you, you're instructed in, in God's word, but, but do you sit under your own teaching? Like you, you teach other people about God's radical grace, but do you preach grace to yourself? You can point out what's, what, what is unhealthy lifestyles in others, but do you point out unhealthy lifestyles in yourself? And, and for me, I'll just say, like, this has been a super challenging week uh, studying this text and examining my heart because I, as you know, I, I, I do this from time to time. Like, I teach God's word. And the question is, Tim, do you just teach God's word or, or how are you at applying God's word? How, how are you living God's word out? And, and that's why James says, hey, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will be judged more strictly. So... Pray for your pastor. Pray for people who teach up here. I, I need it. But how about you? Do you teach your kids? Do you teach your friends? Do you, do, do you, do you know what's true? Do you live the truth that you know? Or do we live from this posture that says, do as I say, not as I do? And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, saying there's, there's hypocrisy because they, they think they're going to be saved because of their affiliation, because they know what's right and wrong, but he's more concerned about are we living it out. Uh, next verse, it says, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh, verse 22, you who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He's saying, wait, now, now you can hate idolatry, you abhor idolatry in others. Uh, and say, man, that we live in a, a society with all these idols of, of work and, 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 and status and image and all these things, and we can despise that in others. But do we do the same thing? You know, he, he's, he's addressing that. It, Malachi, the Jewish audience would have understood Malachi 3.10 where, where God tells people, hey, you're, you're, you're under a curse, the whole nation, because you're robbing me. And they're like, what are you talking about? We've never robbed you. He said, yeah, you are. He said, said you robbed me because, because, because you, you, you're withholding a tithe, the 10% of, of income. He says, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, then there'll be food in my house. 
And if you do that, then open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing you can't even contain it. And so what Paul's saying, he's saying, hey, you pour out, point out idolatry in others, but do you rob God? Like, do you rob temples and, and only to self-identify that you have an idol of money in your own life? Verse 23, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And so he's, he's getting very personal uh, with these folks in Rome and probably some of us today. He says, says religious people, here, here's, what, here's what religious people do. Religious people focus on what they learn, not what they live. Uh, religious people set themselves up as a spiritual authority and judge, but never really often people help in a practical way to help them get better. Re religious people say, law to you, but grace to me. Let me point out what you're doing wrong. You're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. And yeah, I got some stuff going on my, on my own life, but thank God for God's grace. Never extending grace to anyone else, only giving law and judgment to others. And, and Paul's saying this is, this is hypocrisy. Yeah, they make people feel like the lowest on the totem pole. They make people feel far, far less than the way God views them in order to make themselves feel, feel better. There's no grace involved. And hypocrisy is the greatest challenge facing the church today because look what Paul says next. In Romans 2, 24, says this. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying for some of you inside the church are the biggest challenge against the church. He's saying, he said, this word blasphemed, it means to be cursed. It means to, to strike uh, against a reputation, uh, to harm someone's reputation. He says God's reputation is harmed. God, God's name is cursed because of you. So hypocrisy discredits God's name, and that's Paul's point and his challenge to the church. Here's what religious people do. Here's what, here's what happens. And, and, and to some degree, we all identify with this, right? And so rather than, than grabbing a mirror, we grab binoculars, and we say, yep, I see you, Steve. Yep. Judging by the pores on your forehead, I am questioning some things in your life. And we just examine people. And the problem's always out there. The challenge with binoculars, I can zoom in on all your faults. Like, did you brush your teeth today? You know, like we can see very clearly what's happening in other people's lives. All the while ignoring my own teeth. All the while ignoring whatever's happening here. And this is what religious people do. And here's, here's, here's the problem with that. Here's the challenge with that. Is that it, it degrades, it discredits God's, God's name. Uh, to some level, again, we're all guilty of this. Here's what Jesus said about this in, in Matthew 7, uh, 3 through 5. He says, says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So he draws this image. He's, Have you ever got like an eyelash in your eye or like you're, you're sawing something, you get a speck of, of sawdust in your eye? It doesn't feel good. You're like, hey, bro, can you help me? And the dude that you're working with, he's got a two by four hanging out of his eye. He's like, yeah, sure, I can help you. Pow! Like, and so what happens is, is these religious hypocrites, they got this plank in their own eye. And so while they try to help people, they actually end up just beating them up. And that's what, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying he says, you got a, a plank in your own eye, but, but you don't pay attention to it. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When all the time you've got a plank in your own eye. Here's the word, you hypocrite. You're wearing a mask. It's not who you really are because you, 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 pre you present yourself like, yeah, I'm an eye surgeon. But no, 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 you need surgery on your eye. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the plank in others. So he doesn't say don't help people out. 
He doesn't say, hey, you can't address things in other people's lives. He's saying, hey, first address yourself. Here's the invitation. Here's the invitation. Rather than than grabbing binoculars, he invites us to grab a mirror. And this is what what James talks about. James chapter 1, he says, hey, hey, look look at yourself, right? Like, Like if you know truth, am I living up to the truth? If I'm going to stand up here and talk to you about hard things, am I holding myself to those hard things? If we teach our kids, be honest, come forth. Whenever you make a mistake, come clean. How am I doing in that area? That's Paul's point. And that's why James says, says, hey, God's word, it's like a mirror. And sometimes if we're honest, we can say, wow, I heard a really convicting sermon. I got to send that to Mark because he needs that. (laughs) Right? Like he's got to get some stuff figured out. Or, wow, that verse is so strong. I'm going to text somebody that one. And maybe, maybe it's not about sending it to someone else. Maybe first we say, how am I doing in that area of my life? And James says, if you look into the law that gives freedom and you forget what you, you look like, like you guys, you guys looked in the mirror today and you're looking pretty good because of it. But if you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I got eye boogers, I got some snot from last night, some drool still hanging off my face, and you don't do anything about it. He's saying, why? You wouldn't do that. That's ludicrous. He's saying, but some people do that with God's word all the time. They know what it says, but they say, let me get some binoculars so I can tell other people what they're doing wrong rather than saying, how am I doing? And that's what Paul's pointing out. He's saying religious hypocrisy like that, it, it actually discredits God's name. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of that kind of behavior. Uh, Second observation, religious hypocrisy brings God's wrath because it disregards God's applause. It disregards God's applause. They get applause from all the other people, all the while ignoring, disregarding what God values, and Paul's going to address that. Verse 25, uh, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. If those who have not been circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised. The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision and are a lawbreaker. And I know what you're thinking. Finally, a message on circumcision. Like this is the moment you've been waiting for. You're like, I've been to this church for two years, and it's the first time. Yes! Get them! No, that's, that, that's probably what no one's thinking. Uh, you might be thinking, what in the world is Paul even talking about here? And that's a good question. Here's what he's saying. He's saying these people, so religious hypocrites, they say, hey, because of my religious affiliation, I'm a Jew, I'm good in God's sight. Hey, because I've been circumcised. Uh, now I'm good, in, I'm good in God's sight. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's not about circumcision physically. As a matter of fact, people who haven't never heard of circumcision, but like we talked about last week, do what they understand uh, from, from creation. They, they see God in creation. They say, God, you must be real. God, uh, reveal yourself to me. God, you've given me a conscience. And so I'm going to act according to my conscience based on what's good or bad. He says, those Gentiles who don't even know God, they'll actually judge you who have the law and are circumcised. Wow. Like to a Jewish audience, this would have been shocking. Now, now circumcision is a big deal. In Genesis 19, uh, God met with Abraham and said, hey, I'm giving you this sign, this physical outward expression of a covenant 
I'm making with you. Here's the challenge, though. The Jewish people put the, the sign, the physical ritual, in front of the relationship. And so it came, became all about circumcision, all about this ritual, and not about relationship. And if we're not careful, we will fall in the same trap. For us, it's probably not circumcision. Uh, but for us, maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's sacraments. Maybe it's, it's if I do this, do this, do this, do this, then God will approve me. And Paul said, hey, it's never been about the ritual. It's always been about the relationship. And whenever those get out of whack, when those get out of balance, we're in, we're in trouble. And so he says, he says, says, you know, basically you've forgotten what it's most important. It's all about, about relationship. Verse 28, a man who is not a Jew if he, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, and circumcision is not merely outward and physical. And so he's saying, yeah, circumcision obviously is physical, like there's a physical aspect of that. But what God's really concerned about is like your heart. What's going on, on the inside? And are there some things that we're allowing in our heart? And so we think because of our outward appearance, we're good, but inwardly we're not, we're not dealing with some things that need to be trimmed away. Uh, the reason religious hypocrisy is such an offense to God is because it's all external. Uh, not internal. It's all about my performance before you, not about how, how God views me. He desires truth in the inmost parts. And here, here's the challenge I would say with this. Uh, whenever a community or whether a, a family uh, is very much about appearance, and it's all about appearance, are you performing right? Uh, not, not necessarily what's going on behind the scenes. It will, it will result in covert living instead of overt living. We'll be covert in our sin. We'll be covert in our activity. And whenever I gather in a space like this, I'll, just to tell Alfredo, yeah, I'm good, man. Like, I got this mask on. So, yeah, of course. But oh, uh, I'm living a covert life behind the scenes. I'm not overt. I'm not transparent. This is true of parents in, in your home. Like, if your kids come to you when they make a mistake and you just blast them, not like punch them, but, you know, like you blast them, Right? Uh, next, what do you think next time they blow up? Do you think they're going to come to you and talk to you about it? No. If someone comes to you with their brokenness and say, man, I'm struggling in this area, I would just suggest that's a very sacred space. And that might be your spouse. That might be your child. And if they do, when they do, treat it as such with grace-filled posture, knowing that we're all imperfect people in progress. We're all broken. But like, like we have to have this environment here that says radical grace across the board. So when come, someone comes and says, man, I'm struggling in this area, we don't say, I'm shocked. How could you? We say, well, of course. No surprise. What took you so long to come forward? We're imperfect people in progress. Uh, statistically, uh, over 75% of the room like, struggles with pornography right now. And so when someone comes forward and says, hey, I struggle with pornography, I'm not like, well, shame on you. I'm saying, I know. <laughs> About time you try to get healing. Why not try to grow in freedom in that area of your life? We're imperfect people in progress, but religious people say, say, no, like you're blowing it. Let me just tell you, it's all about performance. And so they value circumcision. They value religious ritual all the while their heart is tangled up in knots. Uh, verse 29, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So in other words, God, by his spirit, has to do a deep work in our hearts, in our lives. So the person who understands that, he says, such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. 
So the kind of man that, that God's like, yeah, the kind of lady that's like, yeah, way to go. Like, think of, like the creator of the universe gives you applause. We're willing to take off our mask and say, I'm not basing my hope on circumcision. I'm not basing my hope on religious ritual. I'm basing my hope on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And because my hope is in what Jesus has done, I can be vulnerable and transparent with you because my salvation is not contingent on what you think of me. My salvation is contingent on what he's done for me. Therefore, I can be authentic, vulnerable, and real. It's covert or it's overt based on the environment that we choose to, to create. So Paul has made some fun statements uh, that would be very unsettling to the original audience. Um, uh, some, some unsettling statements, especially to the Jewish person. He's kind of dismantling where their hope is. And, and he knows because Paul has been preaching this gospel for decades now. And he's, he's basically just said, hey, your religious affiliation doesn't save you. Your circumcision, outward rituals, it doesn't, it doesn't save you. Uh, a matter of fact, Gentiles who don't even practice those things are going to judge you. And they're like, okay. And so he knows that his audience is going to come at him. He's been backed into a corner and he's anticipating some questions. And, and the questions that the audience is going to ask reveal this, this third statement that religious hypocrisy brings God's wrath because it degrades God's character. It degrades God's character. And so whenever a religious person is called out, uh, they're, they're going to do anything to save face, even if it means calling God's character into question. They'll question everybody else's character. They'll say, hey, what about Veronica? Did you hear what she did? Hey, well, if you think that's tough, like, man, you, have you, you talked to Monica? Like, it's all out there. Hey, I'm going to say, I'm backed into a corner. Now I'm trying to save face. And they're even willing to cause, call God's character into, into question in order to save face. Now, I would say this too. Uh, this next section is going to require us to put on our thinking cap. Um, uh, Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a great commentator, great preacher, uh, and theologian of the last century, uh, said the, this section of Scripture is the most difficult text to understand. It's, it's deep, deep waters. Um, but he, he pastored at Westminster in London. Uh, you live here in Silicon Valley, and so you're much smarter than they are, so I think you're going to get this. <laughs> So, so Paul, Paul's arguments uh, have, he knows arguments are coming. He knows rebuttals to what he's just said are coming. And so the religious hypocrites uh, degrade God's character by presenting these type of objections that, that question who God is. And so the first objection, their first objection undermines God's covenant. They're, they're questioning maybe God broke his covenant. Romans 3.1 says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Like, hey, if I'm not saved because of my religious affiliation, why should I even be a Jew? What, what advantage is there? Or what, what, what's the value of circumcision? Like, why do you know what I went through to do that? Like, like what value is there in that? Uh, that was God's sign of the covenant. So what, maybe God, maybe God, if you're saying Jew, God's chosen people aren't going to be saved because we're Jewish, if you're saying even though I'm circumcised, I'm not going to be saved because I'm circumcised, then maybe God forgot about his covenant. Maybe God broke his promise. Uh, maybe, maybe he's not as faithful as I thought he was. And so they undermine who God is. Verse 2, Paul's response is, well, wait, wait. No, much in every way. He, he, says, he says, first of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. 
And so he goes, he says, hey, if you're a Jewish person, like there's much value in, in every way in being Jewish because you have, you have God's word. Like you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And if you would study God's word, then you would know that it would point you to a hope beyond religious ritual. It would point you to a Messiah that would rescue you and, build, and give, give you a relationship with God, not based on your performance, but based on his radical, radical grace. But they undermine God's covenant. Jesus actually talks about this too in John 5, 39. He says, talking to religious people, religious leaders, he says, you diligently study scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. Now, now there's value in scriptures. We, we stand for the reading of the word. We, we teach God's word every week. Uh, we encourage you, uh, be in God's word. There's a tremendous difference if you read God's word four days a week, how, how much healthier spiritually you will be. How, how less you'll struggle with addiction, how, how much better your marriage would be. This is all research-based. But, but they're saying, hey, the, the, the religious people say, I got God's word. I know God's word. Like, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, hey, just because you possess him, it doesn't mean you have eternal life. He says, these scriptures, if you knew them, they testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And so it's not, again, it's not about a religious ritual. It's about a relationship and, and the fact that they're calling into question, maybe God broke his covenant with God's people. It undermines who, who God is because they're trying to save face. But he said, if you really studied the scriptures, you, you would know where hope is found. Second objection that he gives is, is the, it nullifies God's faithfulness. And so these people, these religious people, backed into a corner. They, they question, maybe God uh, uh, undermines his covenant, maybe broke his covenant. Now they're saying, maybe God's not as faithful as I think. Verse 3, what if some did not have faith? Were the lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? They're saying, yeah, sure, maybe I don't have faith, but does that mean like God's, God's not faithful anymore and that's why he's going to judge me? Paul's like, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. You say, no, like you're the just, God, you're just. You do what's right. What's interesting is that, that, that Paul, this quote is from Psalms 51. And in Psalm 51, it's uh, King David. King David wrote this Psalm. King David wrote this Psalm after one of the biggest blowups of his life. Uh, King David had committed adultery with another man's wife. He, he saw Bathsheba was like, wow. She's smoking hot, got to get me some of that, slept together. Not only that, he had her husband killed. And so David blew it. And David doesn't say, well, it's God's fault because he made me with this sex drive. It's, not, it's God's fault because he gave me these desires. No, no, David knows, like, he can, he can go to God. Here's what he says in Psalm Psalm 51, he says, against you, against, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's the quote that Paul just shared, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David knows that his lack of faithfulness does not discredit God's faithfulness. Aren't you thankful that Hebrew says, even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. Yeah. He, he cannot disown himself. Like he is faithful. It's who he is. And so these people are saying, well, maybe God's not faithful. And ultimately, Paul's going to say that's why they're worthy of, of God's judgment, God's wrath. Third objection uh, makes God unjust. Somehow God is unjust. Romans 5, uh, 3, 5. 
But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? In other words, they're saying like, hey, like, maybe if I'm unrighteous, like, okay, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm living life however I want, doing whatever I want, but maybe I'm helping God out here. Maybe I'm just making him look better. So that people can see his righteousness more clearly. And Paul says, says like, maybe they're saying, is God unjust? And, he, and Paul clarifies, he's like, I'm using a human argument. He's like, this is what I've heard people say. I didn't think this up on my own. He's like, don't connect this with me. He says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And so they question uh, God's covenant. Maybe God's undermined his covenant. Maybe he's broken it. It nullifies God's faithfulness. They say maybe God's unjust. And then finally, the th- fourth objection diminishes God's glory. Uh, Romans 3, 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? So the, the argument here is like, hey, yeah, sure, I lie, but, but if I lie, doesn't that just make God's truth look better? Like, you're welcome, God, I'm helping you out, is the argument. And, and they're at fault because they assume they can increase or decrease God's glory. Like, God doesn't need me for his glory. God doesn't need any of us. Like God is glorious. It's who he is. Just as he is faithful, it's an attribute. Just as he is love, just as he is patient, as he is kind, he is faithful, he is glorious. And he doesn't need anyone's help to increase that or to decrease that. So he says, hey, if my falsehood enhances uh, God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Verse 8. Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported, and some claim that we say, so he's saying, people are saying this, but it's not true, let us do evil that good may result. He says, people who live like that, people who think that way, even though they're very religious, even though they check all the boxes, their heart's not in it. And he says, their condemnation is deserved. Strong language. Here's what I want us to take away from this. I don't know where you're at on this journey. I don't know if you feel like, man, because I give, because I serve, because I go to church, because I've been baptized, because I've taken communion, I'm right with God. Those things are good and very biblical, and we're called to do those. But we're called to do those because we've been saved, because God's rescued us, because he's, he's forgiven us. That motivates us. That compels us to do all those things. We don't do those things to be made right with God. We do those things because we are made right with God. And that's Paul's point. And anything besides salvation by grace through faith is anti-gospel. And that's Paul's point. The old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. When you and I stand before God, I'm not going to be able to say, well, I, I pastored at Central Christian Church and I preached every Sunday. I, I gave sacrificially above the tie. I did this. I, man, I canceled them. I, I, I didn't cancel them. I counseled them. I didn't, can, I didn't cancel anybody. He's not going to say, wow, way to go, Tim. Good work. Come on in. No, like... Some of you know my story. I'm jacked up. I've done a lot of screwed up stuff I'm not real proud of. My only hope for me, my only hope for you is on the day of judgment, we can stand before a holy and just God and say, I don't deserve it. 
man, I can't even believe I'm here before you, but I'm so thankful for Jesus. Because on the cross, God took my sin and my shame and he laid it on Jesus and punished Jesus as only my sins deserve. So that now I can stand before God, righteous, holy, blameless, as only Jesus deserves. Paul's saying to the religious people, anything less than that will result in condemnation. Our hope is built on nothing less. Not your performance, how good it's been or how bad it's been. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your radical grace, for your rescuing power, God. And we thank you, God, that you free us from religiosity. You free us from rules of do's and don'ts. You you have truth for us to thrive. But, God, it's not by, by keeping rules that we have relationship with you. So, God, I pray you'd free us from, from that religious mindset because ultimately all of our, our good works are like filthy rags before you. Minstrel cloths, the Bible calls it. It's gross. So, God, we don't want to fall into that trap, and we can because we are kind of a performance-based society. So, God, today we just re-anchor into your radical grace. We anchor back into the cross where ultimately our hope lies. As you continue to pray with heads bowed, eyes closed, maybe you're here and you say, man, I've, I've tried. I've tried to earn God's favor. I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to, uh, you, you have your own list, whatever that is. I've tried quitting this. I've tried doing that. And somehow maybe God would accept me. Listen, uh, God accepts you not based on what you've done or your religious activity. He accepts you based on what Jesus has done. And you can have a relationship with Jesus today. Paul's later going to write in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. As we talked about earlier that in John 3.16, Jesus came to save the world. How do, we, how do we experience salvation? Through believing in him. That's when we're free from condemnation, free from wrath. So if you want to begin a real relationship with Jesus today, you can begins by talking to God, and it would be my joy to lead you in a prayer like that. So if that's you, just say something, talk to God like this, say something like this. Say, God, I realize I've blown it. Like, man, I even my, my, I try to be religious. I try to do good stuff. It doesn't earn right standing with you. And so today, God, I come to you, and I put my hope 100% in Jesus. I believe that on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe he didn't just die on a cross. I believe he rose again. Now, Jesus, because you're alive, I'm asking you to come alive in me. Today, I realize you laid down your life for me. And so my commitment to you, God, is today I'm laying down my life for you. Whatever you have, I want it. Whatever you say, I'm in. Whatever you ask me to do, I'm on. God, would you come alive in me and give me the gift of eternal life in Jesus' name. So you continue to pray, heads bowed, eyes closed. If that's your prayer today, just slip up your hand. Let me know. I'd love to pray for you before I get out of here. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Yep, thanks, thanks. Yep, thanks, thanks. Jesus, you see everyone reaching out to you. I pray, God, that you reach out to them, that they would step into a place because of what you've done for them on the cross where they realize there's no more condemnation, that they're free from their sin, free from guilt, so that now they can have a real relationship with you on a daily basis. God, I pray right now they, they just sense the joy of your salvation. They sense forgiveness and grace, fresh start, new beginning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's put our hands together for those that made that spiritual commitment today.